the book of Job this evening, the book of Job, in your Bibles. I've had a growing pastoral burden to spend several messages considering different forms of suffering in the life of a believer and some of what the scripture says about responding to that suffering. So you can think perhaps in some categories of suffering. There are times that God's people face suffering. That is the result of our Heavenly Father disciplining His children on account of sin. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. And there's suffering that takes place as God the Father disciplines His children. There There are times that God's servants face suffering from the hostilities involved in gospel advancement, and we see evidence of that in the scripture. There are times that the Lord uses various tribulations for the purpose of really triggering and contributing to transformation of our character and the building of our faith. And Lord willing, we're going to consider all these types of sufferings, and again, a scriptural response to that. But tonight we're going to consider a form of suffering that perhaps we struggle with, and when I say we struggle with mentally, and we may struggle with just in terms of our our inner man and our faith, perhaps we struggle with this more than any other. And that is when we experience suffering, when as much as we know to be the case, we, we are right with God. And we know we're not perfect, but as much as we know we have we have adjusted ourselves by faith uh, in submission to be all that God would have us to be. We're walking as best as we know with the Lord. <clears throat> or maybe, maybe it's not even ourselves, but maybe we watch somebody else that suffers intensely. And from everything we know, those, those are people that really are right with God, and yet they are suffering intensely. And I'm just going to call this category uh, the suffering of the godly. The suffering of the godly. In the mid-1980s, before the AIDS crisis uh, was, and and AIDS was really a well-known disease, there was a rural family with six children. Four of them were hemophiliacs. And uh, their family was serving the Lord with what another brother who knew them described as earnest faithfulness and joy. It's a pastor's family, and uh, they love the Lord. We're serving the Lord. No glaring, uh, you know, kind of credibility issues or questions about their life. But the AIDS crisis hit, and unknown to doctors and to patients alike, um, the nation's blood supply was actually contaminated. And four of the hemophiliacs had to tap into that supply and two of those children contracted AIDS and died within three years. A third died several years later, and a fourth um, who refused to be tested is, is a father of three children, and as I heard the report, um, at that time had no insurance and no insurer would, would give him the time of day. And to those who knew, again, the family knew the individual lives involved, There was no way you could tie the suffering to any particular sin in their lives, and certainly you couldn't tie it to the sin that that AIDS crisis is known for. 
Now, they were, of course, not sinless, but they were God-fearing, faithful people. And the questions come up, why? How? And, and the book of Job is, has a unique role in addressing the suffering of people like that. Uh, Joseph Tan, who suffered in a Romanian prison for the testimony of Christ, he wrote these words in reference to Job. He said, the suffering of a good and upright person has always been a big problem for those who believe in a just God. How can a just God allow for an obedient, faithful person to suffer tragedies and distresses of all kinds? Dr. D.A. Carson uh, wrote in his book, How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. He said, Job's special contribution to the canon, to the scripture as we have it, is to, and to the topic of evil and suffering, is its treatment of what many would call irrational evil, or he used this expression, incoherent suffering. So he's referring to a situation where, from the sufferer's perspective, and from the perspective of those who know the one suffering, there just is no possible explanation to why he is suffering. It's just, it's, it, it seems to us irrational. It's incoherent. You, you can't make sense of why that is happening to these people, especially to that extent, that kind of intensity. And that completely fits Job's description. If you are here in chapter 1, we can go back to verse 1 and begin to gather together some of the really obvious background information. Job 1 and verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And I'm not going to preach verse by verse through this book, and so I'm not even going to go into the depth with the precise meaning of each of those terms, but I think it's obvious as you read it that Job was a genuinely what? Okay, this is a godly man. We're talking about the suffering of the godly. There's multiple expressions that point to that. And his godliness is illustrated even in, in verse 5, Referring to his children, you can see that we read, And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Job continually rose early in the morning to offer intercessory prayer on behalf of his children. And in verse 8 we read, that God spoke. It was God that spoke these words of commendation of Job's godliness. In verse 8, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? And then God is the one who gives that, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And you could turn forward to chapter 2. We're going to come back here. But just look in verse 3 of chapter 2. Again, the Lord, ha- the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? And this phrase, there is none like him in the earth. In what way? A perfect and upright man, one that fears God and is true with evil. So by God's own direct statement, Job was not only godly, but God actually said Job was was the godliest man of his day. I mean... Should we be trying to sort that out and compare? And the Bible tells us not to compare, but God actually said about Job, all right, now that guy, there's nobody like him on the earth. There's nobody as godly as that man. And, he, and God said it to Satan. Now, you go back to chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3. 
we add to it another obvious fact. So he's a godly man. In fact, there's none godlier. And then verses 2 and 3, there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. So God had said there's none like him in terms of his godliness. And now this account is saying there's none like him in terms of what? In terms of his wealth. So Job was a materially prosperous man. In this case, it kind of narrows the region down. He was the greatest man of all the East. And, and the description we have, there's some people that God, God has made prosperous and you may say i may not be rich in wealth but i am rich in the family that god has given me well in job's case he was both right rich in children (coughs) rich in material means and and again he was the richest man of his region so in the setting as it's given to us there was no one godlier than him and there was no man at least in his region that was richer than him And it's on those two facts that the story kind of hinges. And there's a scene that opens now in verse number 6 with God's angels and Satan before God. And I'm going to read the entirety of this beginning in verse 6 down through verse 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God, referring to the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth now thine hand, uh, put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to the face. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thy hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And we'll stop there to try to make some additional observations. One of the observations we want to make is that it is God who initiates this whole situation and discussion about Job. So this entire story begins with God, not with who? Not with Satan, not with the devil. And God is and always will be the author and the finisher, in this case, of what was a monumental test of Job's faith. But it began with God. The second observation is that that Satan couldn't dispute the fact of Job's faithfulness as God had given it. So instead, he questioned Job's what? He's not disputing his faithfulness, but when he says in verse 9, does Job fear God for not, he's questioning his what? He's questioning his motivation. 
Oh, sure, he does everything you want him to do, but why is he doing it? And the implication is that, that Job's only serving you, God, because you have made him what? You've made him rich. I mean, you've just blessed him. Of course he serves you. You've made him the richest man of this whole region. And I do want to remind you that there are people out there watching your Christianity with skeptical eyes that are doubting your motives. There are are people that are not going to be convinced by your activity alone, and they are waiting and they are watching for some indication of what your real motives are. They, they, in some cases, they literally think that you're faithful because you haven't had as hard of a life as they have had. And I actually had a lady that had been a member of a church for some time in Nova Scotia just tell me that to my face. And I said, you know, uh, we don't need to compare. But I had a dad leave when I was 11 and come and go for a while and finally go for good. And we moved a thousand miles away. And if I continued to tell you what my teen years were like, I, I, I don't even want to think about them. <clears throat> but but there, are, there are people who think that you just kind of naturally obey God because you've always been in an ideal circumstance and God has always blessed you and it just comes easy for you. <clears throat> Satan made that very insinuation about Job. A third observation that we want to make as we just are looking at this scene is that Job wasn't Satan's ultimate target. The attack on Job's motivation, and if I even say it this way, the attack on Job's integrity was ultimately an attack not on Job, but on what? On God and even God's honor. The charge was really against God. The charge was that that Job serves you because of what he can get out of it, but the charge against God is basically that God's doing what? That God's bribing. I mean, God, you've bribed him with faithfulness to you by just pouring out unlimited blessing. And with the tension of those dynamics in view... Again, initiated by God, Satan can't dispute the faithfulness, so he questions the motivation, but ultimately he does that to attack God and God's honor. With all of that there, God gave Satan a limited permission to inflict Job with suffering. And even that is something that we, that we should make note of, and that is this, that God had to grant Satan permission. And God even established the boundaries. And he did it to give, to give occasion for Job really to prove that God does indeed have people that will serve him even if they lose everything. And with that, we go into the second scene of the story. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read the full report, but we'll summarize again. You notice in verse 13, and there was a day. So we've kind of moved to a new scene here. 
And what we read, and you can just run your eyes over it, I think you're familiar with it, but we read of Satan orchestrating events that concluded with some of Job's livestock that was first of all stolen, um, the rest of it burned, his servants killed either with a sword or with fire, and before it's done, all of his children are killed when their house caves in on them during a storm. So he's lost everything. You say, well, I'm not rich in money, but I'm rich in family. Okay? He had both, and now he's lost it all. The children and all of that livestock. And contrary to Satan, what did Satan say? Satan said, he only serves you for what he can get out of it. Let me touch him, and he'll curse you. But contrary to Satan's expectation, look at verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head. And all of that is an indication that Job did what? He grieved. I mean, he, he really hurt and he grieved. And there's all the evidence of that. But he not only grieved, continuing on, he did what? He fell upon the ground and worshipped. <clears throat> Brethren, I, I, I'm emphasizing the grieving just to say this. Grieving is not wrong. And it is not wrong for sorrow <clears throat> to just overflow in emotional displays. If that was sin, Jesus did it because at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that he's about to bring Lazarus out of the grave, but seeing what the family that had lost their dear one. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus did what? He wept. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And, and the question that we are faced with as we sorrow and as we look at others who, <coughs> um, as, we, as we suffer and as we look at others who suffer, the question is not, do we sorrow? The question is, do we sorrow as those who have no hope, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, or do we sorrow and grieve like Job, but at the same time worship, even in the midst of the heartbreaking sorrow? And verse 21 points us to the fact that Job not only had clear thinking about our entrance into this world and our exit out, as you can see, but he did not allow any of that, that God brings us in and God can take us out. He didn't <clears throat> allow any of that to lead to just fatalism. Because his last words were what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And with that, we move into chapter 2 and the third scene. And it begins the same way as the first scene. You can see in verse one, again, there's the day when the sons of God, the angels, and Satan come. And the Lord asks Satan again, where have you been? <clears throat> and then, in verse 3, God initiates the discussion about Job again. The Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And now what's very interesting is, as he, he rehearses all of this, there's none like him, perfect and upright man, one that fears God and is true with evil. 
And God even brings this up. And he still holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him. And, and that phrase is, is important for us in terms of what we're doing in interpreting this, this whole book. Because you moved me to destroy him without what? Okay, there's God just saying, even after you moved me to destroy him for no reason in him, he is still faithful. He's still a man of integrity. He still worships me. And in order to discredit God, Satan asserted that Job's godliness was still not genuine in verses 4 and 5. Look at what he says. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life, but put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to the face. And you can, you can see what he's saying there. He's saying that Job is so self-centered that you could take his children and you could take all of his riches, but you haven't let me touch him. Now let me actually inflict pain to him personally and now we'll see a totally different man. As if what Job only really cares about is what? His own physical comfort. You're still too protective, is what Satan is saying. And so, as we see in verse 6, the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he's in thy hand, which is to say, All right, you do whatever. But, notice that last phrase, but save his life. God extended the boundaries, which which Satan could inflict suffering upon Job. So that the permission, at this point, the permission seems nearly unlimited. And yet God still put a boundary on and said, but you can't take his life. And the fourth scene that follows it is just um, four verses. Satan inflicts, in verse 7, Job's entire body with boils. And it, it says from his head to his toes. And Job sits in pain and degradation in verse 8. And he's scraping himself with broken pottery while he's sitting in an ash pit. Think of that. The man who's been the richest man of his day is scraping himself with, with broken pottery sitting in an ash pit. And Job's wife, who... I would just say, as we think about her, she must have been suffering terribly alongside of Job. I mean, it wasn't just his children, it's what? It's her children. And all of that, and, and none of this can be explained. And now look at what my husband is going through. And, and she says at the end of verse 9, you, you ought to just curse God and die. Apparently, the, her reasoning was, just curse God and let him kill us both and put us out of our misery. And so now he's added, on top of everything else, his wife is communicating in that kind of way. Let God just put us out of our misery and die. But contrary to Satan's assertions, because Satan has said, you let me touch him and he'll curse you. But contrary to that, in verse number 10, he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. 
What shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. He's still worshiping, grieving, but still worshiping. Now, how do, you, how do you explain someone responding in that way in the face of such great loss? And I just want to draw from these scenes that we've looked at, really a couple statements from Job. I want, to, I want to draw from there some firm convictions that Job expresses about God right in the middle of this suffering. And the firm conviction that Job expressed is he was, firmly, he was firmly convinced in the existence of God. That there is no hint in any of these words or in many of the words that follow, and you know it's going to go on for 40-something chapters, right? And Job is going to be launched into, God, what is happening? Where are you? Why is this happening? Give me an answer. All right, I'll present my, I'll come into your courtroom and you just open up the charges and use your prosecutor and lay it all out there. I mean, Job's going to end up doing all of that. But never once does Job doubt the existence of God during the whole time. And if all you read is that, is that first line back in Verse number 21, where he says, you know, naked came I out of the womb. Back in chapter 1, verse 21, naked came I out of the womb, and naked I will return. <clears throat> you, could, you could possibly, if that's all you read, you could see fatalism. Because in the world of an atheist, there really isn't anything evil. Because we're all just a bunch of evolving particles that are bumping into each other, and calamities are bound to happen in the process, and... If you train your mind to think that way, and you really do have to train your mind to, because no one is born an atheist, you have to train the knowledge of God out of your mind. <clears throat> but, but if you do that, you could just say, ah, you know, well, that's life in the evolutionary jungle. But that isn't Job's response. It wasn't just, I came in naked, I'm going to go out naked. He, his response is, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He's firmly convinced in the existence of God. And even in those words, a second conviction that he expresses is that he, he's convinced that God is personal and interacts with his creatures. Again, chapter 1, we just looked at it again. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. In chapter 2 and verse 10, when he's communicating with his wife, he says, Shall we not receive good at the hand of the Lord? Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? Then again, this reference is to what, not to what is morally evil, but to what is troubling and painful and catastrophic. And look, all the blessing we got, it's from God. And now we're facing these catastrophes. Are we, are we not going to bow and receive that from God? Um, Job believed that God had every right, God, God had blessed him, and God had every right to take away all that blessing. So Job, Job does not believe in the God, for instance, of the deist. So Job doesn't see God like the big watchmaker who kind of puts all the pieces in place and then winds the clock and, and lets the universe on its course and run without any real personal interest. Later, as you know in the book, Job is going to say one of the most, 
well-remembered statements in the whole book. Job is going to say, He knoweth the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as what? I shall come forth as gold. But he says, He knows the way that I take. He's involved in this. I know he's involved in this. So he knows God exists. He's convinced of that. He is convinced that God personally interacts with his people. And then thirdly, he was convinced that God was in sovereign control over all the circumstances he was facing. He was convinced that God was in sovereign control over all the circumstances he was facing. We know that God let Satan do all of this uh, taking away and, all, and bringing in all this suffering. But it's interesting, Job didn't go to that nasty devil. That, the devil's at it again. He didn't go there. What did he do? He said, the Lord gives and who's taken away? The Lord's taken away. Again, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and, and not evil? All of that, by, Job, by Job's implication, he sees all of that as from the hand of the Lord. So, he's not thinking as an atheist that this is just a bunch of, you know, evolving particles that are bouncing into each other and things are bound to happen. He's not thinking like the deist that God just kind of set it in motion and wound it and, and then he turns it all over. And he's also not thinking as a dualist. And he's not, he's not thinking as if evil and good are competitive equals. And they both get a few victories here and there. You know, God gets a few, and the evil and the devil gets a few. He believed in a God who was all-powerful, and that God was in charge. I can't explain anything else, but I know God is, and I know he's still in charge. And, and brethren, it's in these very convictions that we have some of the first lessons that we are supposed to learn about suffering and suffering that is even the suffering of the godly and suffering that may be incoherent. That is, you, you can't think of a good reason for why this is happening. And in the way that all of this is presented to us, there's, there are some lessons that all of us as readers of the book of Job are supposed to learn about suffering. And the first one that we're supposed to learn is just what we've already stated in summarizing these things, but, but your conviction that God exists, your conviction that God is personal and interested and interacting in your life, And your conviction that God is in sovereign control. Listen, those three convictions are the foundation for strength to weather storms of affliction. And you could face a situation, and some of you likely have faced situations in your past. Some of you may be going through that now. It would not be surprising to know that some of us go through it in the near future. You may be in situations like that where that conviction, the conviction that God is and that he's personal and that he's in control is really the only thing you have to fall back on. 
And, and I would just say tonight, if that's all you have, that will prove to be a solid foundation. The knowledge that he is, and he's personal, and he hasn't just let this go, and he's in charge. That will be a solid foundation to weather the storms of affliction. And a second lesson that we are to learn from Job's situation is that God does allow relatively innocent people to suffer. And, and I'm saying it that way because uh, I'm saying relatively innocent because the scriptures do declare there's none good but who? There's none good but God. So no one is absolutely innocent and neither was Job. But there, some suffering in this world is not related to any particular sin. We, we suffer because we live in a fallen world. And there's always a connection. But, but God said, remember God said to Satan in chapter 2 verse 3 that, that, that he moved, uh, moved Satan to destroy Job without cause. Without Job's doing any sin to cause this. And, and I'll even kind of take it a step further. I'm still under that same lesson. But do you know this? In Job's case, at least in Job's case, his genuine godliness is what made him a prime candidate for suffering. His genuine godliness. When I was in my second round of cancer, a leader in our church, I was driving with him in his car, and he said something to me like, um, God must really trust you to give you this trial or something like that. And I said, are you nuts? What are you talking about? <clears throat> and, and he's thinking something like Job. I'm not thinking that way about myself, but I'm, I'm thinking this, that sometime someone's genuine godliness might make them a prime candidate for suffering. We, we like to think that doing right and being right and, and honoring God as much as, as we know how is somehow like a protection against suffering. Even if we wouldn't maybe say that in our heads, we do want it to be that way. We at least hope to be that way, right? I'm going to be as close to God as I can so that no bad stuff happens in my life. But Peter wrote, don't think it's a strange thing concerning your fiery affliction, your fiery child. Don't think that's some strange thing. And a third lesson as we observe Job is that our suffering may be entirely the result of conflict that is not with flesh and blood. But if I use the Ephesians 6 and verse 12, you're, 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 you're in a wrestling match that is not with flesh and blood, but with what? Principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. Listen, our, our suffering may be, the, the drama of it may be acted out in, in a stadium where the spectators are thousands of, of, of spectators that we're not even aware of and our own personal victory isn't the issue but the honor of God is. And I would add that 
some of the spectators of our suffering could be people who live across the street. And they have skeptically doubted whether our Christianity is real. Or it could be, it could be somebody like a lady in a small church in Nova Scotia. Or it could be some family member who's had questions. And your suffering is a God-ordained means of reaching them. And a fourth lesson, and we stated it even in the convictions, is that God is in sovereign control of our sufferings. He isn't inflicting the pain, and he has set boundaries over which Satan cannot go. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried above that ye are able. And a fifth lesson is that God's grace is sufficient for you and I to worship, even in the midst of heartbreaking sorrow. His grace is sufficient for us to worship in the midst of heartbreaking sorrow. I want us to turn in our hymnals tonight back to a song that we sang this morning. And that is number 380. 